This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. If you're listening on KXCV or the Bearcat Public Media app, welcome. I'm glad you're here. On Real Fiction, I speak with authors, journalists, and changemakers. I'm looking for overlooked stories. And all Real Fiction guests have something in common. They are grappling with issues, with ethical gray areas, and no easy solutions. All Real Fiction episodes are available on KXCV's public media app and wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find episodes on realfictionradio.com. I have guest profiles and more information about each episode. I'll be back in a moment with today's guest. My guest today is Peter Funt, a television host, author, and frequent columnist with the Wall Street Journal. And of course, you know this name because of the landmark series, Candid Camera, created by the Funt family in 1947, which I think was reality TV before anyone was calling it that. Peter Funt's observations about journalism, political satire, and the ever-changing media landscape have become must-reads for me and so many readers. And I learned he has a new book coming out this year titled Playing POTUS, The Power of America's Acting Presidents. Now, two recent editorials written by Peter Funt in the Wall Street Journal really caught my attention. One of them is about the decision by several car manufacturers to eliminate AM radios in certain models of electric and hybrid vehicles. And the second editorial is about the state of political satire in the United States. Namely, why has Saturday Night Live stopped doing presidential impersonations? And why are late night comedy hosts reluctant to poke fun at President Biden? I read these editorials side by side. And the connections reveal a lot about America. So Peter Funt joins me from California. Peter, welcome to Real Fiction. My pleasure. Now, the editor in me is going to jump right in and make an important distinction. Uh, Editorials are written only by the management and staff of a publication and represent usually the voice of the publication. What I write are sometimes called columns, op-eds, uh, essays. I'm I'm not lofty enough to to write editorials. I I think that's an important distinction. The uh, the what they call the op-ed page, yeah. page. I think you're referring to, and your pieces are what we would call the op part of the op-ed page, <laughs> the, the opinion part. Yeah, that's um, so right. So that's, that is a very important distinction. And I, in preparing for my conversation, um, those opinion pieces that, that we mentioned, it really gets to what I love to discuss on Real Fiction, which is who gets to say what in our evolving media landscape. And we're going to try to unpack some of that today. But why don't we just start with, let's start with AM radio. This is not something that hits the mainstream headlines too often. Why, in your opinion, is it important for us to understand what's happening to AM radios 
in electronic vehicles and just in general? Yeah, I think there's both a nostalgic factor and a legitimate uh, safety factor. And you wouldn't think those two factors would come in the same sentence, but but in fact, they do. Uh, nostalgia, that's easy to explain. Those of us who grew up with transistors held to our ears rather than uh, internet streaming devices, whatever, uh, relied on AM radio. My goodness, when, when I grew up in the New York City area, uh, we listened to AM from the moment we woke up, uh, maybe on a bedside clock radio, and then when being driven to school by a parent on the car radio, and then after school, maybe on our own transistor radios. You know, there was a time in New York when in the summer you could walk down the beach, say at Coney Island, and listen to the DJs on WABC, like Dan Ingram and and Cousin Brucie, and you didn't have to have a radio. It was so omnipresent that you could just hear without interruption the whole show as you walked down the beach because so many people were playing that station. So it was kind of the back, the soundtrack of the, the soundtrack of that era, right? Exactly right. And um, you know, I wrote in my op-ed in the in the journal that uh, one of the big treats for me when I went to college at the University of Denver was that there were two precious hours each week, from roughly midnight to two a.m. on Sunday night, Monday morning when I could, from Denver, hear WABC New York. Now, the reason was that the signal from New York all other times was interfered with by a station in Albuquerque, New Mexico, KOB. And because they were on the same frequency, uh, we couldn't hear New York in Denver. But during those two hours, KOB shut down for maintenance. And when they did, the the audio window opened. And if we poked our antenna just right, we could hear WABC from, oh, I don't know, 1,600 miles away. And that, of course, is one of the virtues of AM radio. Unlike FM, the signals travel much further and bounce off the uh, ionosphere and and skip, as they call it, and you can hear it. So I, I'm so loaded with these nostalgic thoughts about AM that it was sad, sad to me when I started uh, realizing that a lot of car makers are eliminating AM radios, uh, particularly Euro- European car makers, and particularly in EVs, electric electric cars. And the reason is, is simply because the motors in EVs interfere with AM radio, not with FM, but with AM. And the car makers thought, well, rather than try to solve that problem, we'll just leave out AM radio. Why not? Nobody listens to AM anymore anyway. Well, that's not exactly true. There are over 50 million Americans 
according to Nielsen, who still listen to AM radio. And it's important because as with so many things that get cut down in our media world, the people in the smaller communities in the hinterlands are the first to suffer through this, quote, progress. So, for example, when newspapers fold, that's a sad thing for all of us, certainly for me, but it's less impactful if you live in a big city where you have a lot of other media options. If you live in a small town somewhere in mid-America and the local newspaper goes away, you could find yourself in what they call a news desert, which is to say no news. Well, the same is true with AM radio. I dare say my friends in New York and Los Angeles and other big cities probably care less about AM anymore than people in rural Vermont or Nebraska. Or it's not, it's not, it's because they have fewer media options. But now, and I've given you an incredibly long-winded answer to your question, but now we come to the safety aspect. It seems that a lot of emergency notifications from federal and local government still come primarily on AM radio. And there's a legitimate concern that if enough people don't have access to AM radio, they could fail to hear and therefore heed warnings about whatever, tornadoes or uh, whatever the problem might be. And that's a legitimate concern, so much so that now some members of Congress, like Ed Markey of Massachusetts and uh, the uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, are thinking about whether some steps have to be taken to protect AM, at least for a while longer, not so much for nostalgia to please people like me, but for legitimate safety concerns and economic concerns, because AM is still a pretty good business for a lot of people. You made some very important insights about AM radio. Again, I, I this just was not on my radar until I, I found your piece in the Wall Street Journal. And, and I mentioned in the introduction, you've played many roles in your uh, your career. You've you, I think you've done just about everything in media <laughs> that, that is possible. A former radio host, you are part of an iconic family devoted to comedy and entertainment. This is really a rare vantage point for analysis about the state of conversation in the United States. So I mean you know comedy, you know it you know about its role in American life. So in another uh, Wall Street Journal opinion piece, it it is titled Is the joke on Biden? Um, why what we get to look at is why isn't Saturday Night Live doing what they have done for decades? Make fun of the president. Well, as you mentioned earlier, my new book is about to come out and it's called Playing POTUS. And it's it's kind of a media history book, but an entertaining look, I hope, because I look at the process of doing impressions of U.S. presidents and my 
frame of reference is essentially from John Kennedy, 1962, right up to the present with Joe Biden. And that means 12 U.S. presidents during that period. And I picked that period because, believe it or not, prior to Kennedy, it wasn't done. There were no people impersonating U.S. presidents while they were in office. Uh, Very, very few exceptions, and I I note them in the book. But the the point is, it started with JFK with a, a, a landmark record album called The First Family that was all about making fun of Kennedy in a loving way, done by a a performer named Vaughn Meter. And uh, that opened the floodgates. After that album, everybody was doing imitations of presidents, and it grew and grew. That was in 1962. In 1975, Saturday Night Live had its debut. And of course, they virtually wrote the book about doing imitations of presidents. The first they did was Chevy Chase's uh, Gerald Ford uh, bumbling and stumbling and and being kind of a buffoon. By the way, probably cost Gerald Ford re-election. I shouldn't say re-election, a full term. He was a Uh, He wasn't elected in the first place. He took over when Nixon resigned. But anyway, probably cost Gerald Ford his job. And so we come all the way up to the present with Joe Biden. And in in the journal, the piece you're talking about, I sort of did a little peek into the subject matter in, in terms of the present moment, because all of a sudden there's been a thunderous silence among presidential impersonators who won't do stuff about Joe Biden. Now, Saturday Night Live, which uh, is always in the vanguard of these type of uh, impersonations, would be where you'd look to see what's going on with Joe Biden. And they have a guy, a cast member, Uh, James Austin Johnson is his name, who ostensibly does Biden, but they just don't ever do it. So the question is why? And I think the answer is that the uh, liberal or progressive people who pretty much control Saturday Night Live and much of uh, mainstream entertainment And by the way, may I say parenthetically, I'm one of those people myself. That's that's where my own politics lie. But um, those folks don't really want to take a risk at damaging Joe Biden right now at a time when perhaps the alternative would be uh, more with Donald Trump or someone like him. If politics have apparently become too hot to handle for the comedy industrial complex. Yeah. And yeah. and I that that troubles me because although I was candid in telling you my own personal politics, and I write about that sometime in opinion pieces, 
I think when it comes to comedy, you've got to be an equal opportunity offender. Um, you got to look at it all and find the funny. And I find it very, very worrisome that uh, too many entertainers and impersonators, impressionists, are um, uh, scared to, to deal with Joe Biden. Yeah, it almost seems like there is a sort of self-censorship um, maybe happening uh, individually with um, impressionists and comedians that they are they are not on terra firma in the way that they thought they were they were accustomed to being. One of the interesting things that comes in, comes through in that opinion piece is that as you were researching and writing your book, you have been in conversation with a number of prominent um, comedians and uh, late night uh, hosts. Um, that do comedy. Um, can you share a little bit about what Dana Carvey, Al Franken, um, any of the late night hosts have, have shared with you about this sort of behind the scenes dilemma? Yeah. Um, first of all, a bunch of nice guys. I, I became instant fans, uh, of, of most of these people I had the pleasure to talk with at length and interview, uh, and great, great, enormous respect for their talent. What they do with these uh, impersonations is is not easy. But um, here's what I found. Most of them are in some state of denial. They, they don't like to admit, even to themselves, that they are uh, soft-peddling comedy about, say, Joe Biden. Oh, and by the way, the same thing existed with Barack Obama. Um, the comedians were very, very careful and restrained in how to deal with the first black president, uh, understandably. But uh, Jay Farrow, for example, who played Obama on Saturday Night Live, told me quite uh, frankly that he felt his hands were tied, that Lorne Michaels, the, who runs Saturday Night Live, told him, uh, you, you've got to be really presidential when you're doing Obama. Uh, you you got to be careful. And uh, Jay Farrow felt that that was a mistake and felt uh, inhibited. And so in a strange way, but for a very different reason, we find the same thing occurring with Joe Biden. Now, that we leap over uh, Donald Trump, who was just the opposite. He was, according to my facts and figures, the most impersonated U.S. president in history. Everybody who had access to, you know, orange makeup or a wild uh, blonde wig uh, was doing Donald Trump. And from Alec Baldwin down a long, long list, there was no hesitation to go after Trump. And if I were doing the comedy writing, that's what I'd be doing. Uh, funny stuff if it weren't so sad, in my opinion. But Obama and now Biden, really, really sensitive and you know, to some extent, it relates to the broader issue of political division in the country. Um, it used to be 
and I believe it's true, that not only could people talk about politics without uh, being necessarily mean, nasty, or completely disagreeable, but they could laugh about politics in much the same way. Um, and it, as we've sort of lost our stomach, our, our tolerance for political disagreement, along with it, we seem to have lost our sense of humor about yes. uh, presidential matters. And it's all bad as far as I'm concerned. It's all headed in a bad direction. Yeah, I you raise some outstanding points there that that need to much more reflection uh, for from everyone as as we move forward. I it seems to me that there's a kind of characteristic of American political culture in that humor is an example of what many in the media and all of us are doing. We kind of take the temperature and adjust our behavior and uh, words to conform to whatever the public sentiment of the moment is. And um, maybe things are going, uh, maybe things have gone too far. And just looking at Saturday Night Live as an example of the bigger issue is one way to just, you know, get some analysis about this. Do you see anything changing? Do you, Are you getting any inklings that Maybe maybe the comedians who really are good at this, those who have a national platform, are starting to rethink this? Well, they're starting to be a little bit more daring about Joe Biden. Even as I was writing this, the, the piece in the journal, it was becoming clear to me that some of my progressive colleagues in media who maybe wanted to protect Joe Biden for the first half of his first term in office, were a little bit frustrated with the notion that he might run again, perhaps feeling that's not the direction the party or the country should go. Maybe he's too old for the job, and maybe it's time for someone else. And so all of a sudden, they've let that come through in a bit of their comedy. Stephen Colbert, for example, on CBS, has sort of been in the vanguard of taking the gloves off about Joe Biden. Now, my understanding is Colbert and his writers are fair, a fairly liberal group. So this is a big deal for them to, to be frisky with Joe Biden, but they're doing it. And others are following suit, but not Saturday Night Live. And, uh, you know, I, I talked at great length with Dana Carvey and Al Franken, the two, two that you mentioned, who are still very connected to Saturday Night Live. And neither of them can quite understand it. They just don't understand, nor do I, why Saturday Night Live is tiptoeing the way it is with Biden. Now, one thing they say is maybe it's as simple as they don't have a big star, a big uh, talent to play the Biden role. Well, uh, that could be. Um, but but then again, maybe they haven't given the guy they have much of a chance. And I don't know what's the chicken and what's the egg. But those of us who like comedy and like politics would rather, speaking personally at least, have a no-holds-barred approach to both 
areas. Uh, let it go and uh, take your chances. And that's not what I see happening today. You asked if it's changing. Well, we're at a, a very, very delicate intersection right now in politics. And I think comedy is on the fringes of that in terms of what will happen, who will be uh, the, the Democrats' candidate in 2024, and equally importantly, who will the Republicans put up? This is going to be um, <laughs> something for uh, the history books uh, someday. And uh, how co- how comedians treat it uh, will be of great interest to me. We'll have to see. Let me remind listeners that my guest today is Peter Fonte. He's a television host, author, frequent columnist with the Wall Street Journal. He has a new book coming out this year, Playing POTUS, The Power of America's Acting Presidents, which I can't wait to get my hands on when it's ready. And before I let you go, Peter, I know that everyone will want to know what <laughs> is going on with Candid Camera. I hear that there are some some new things in the works in that camp. Can you share anything with us? I can, and thank you for asking. You know, before the pandemic, which is what, two and a half, nearly two and a half years ago, I guess, um, we were very close to a deal to bring Candid Camera back and do a whole new series for what would be the show's ninth different decade of production, if you can believe Mm. that. And then the pandemic slammed the door in our face because if you think about it, the one type of television that would be practically impossible to do in in a pandemic would be Candid Camera, where you're getting in people's faces and you don't want to wear a mask. And my goodness, I wouldn't want to do that. No one would. So we had to sit quietly for several years while things calmed down. And now I am happy to report I have uh, partnered up with a a wonderful studio called Village Roadshow Entertainment. And together we are working on a new version of Candid Camera. We've signed a delightful performer to be my co-host It's a big name that you all would know, and I'm teasing you because I'm not at liberty contractually to name it just yet. So stay tuned because I think by the end of the year or early next, Candid Camera will be back with some brand new surprises and hopefully good reason for folks to smile. I can't think of anyone who hasn't probably popped onto YouTube and checked out a candid camera archive or archival video from time to time to get a good laugh. It's iconic and everyone loves it. So I'm thrilled to hear that it's coming back in a new iteration with Peter Fund. And hopefully, Peter, we can <laughs> lure you back to the program to talk about the new book, Playing POTUS, The Power of America's Acting Presidents. Thank you so much, Peter Fund, for joining Real Fiction today. It was an absolute delight and honor to have you on the program. Take care. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing McGarry. All Real Fiction episodes are available on KXCV's public media app and wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find episodes on realfictionradio.com, 
I have guest profiles on the website, along with links to some of the specific things we discuss in case you're interested in more background information. Real Fiction is on most social media platforms. You can find me there. And a reminder that Real Fiction airs on Saturdays, 1130 on KXCV. Thanks for listening.